Welcome to the WealthCast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello, and welcome to the WealthCast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. Today, I am fortunate to welcome my friend, Apollo Lepescu, Vice President with Dimensional Fund Advisors, headquartered in Austin, Texas. Dimensional has 13 offices globally and manages approximately $430 billion in assets. On today's podcast, Apollo and I will discuss the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the financial markets and offer perspectives from previous financial crises. Thank you for joining us. Apollo, let me start by saying thank you so much for taking some time with us today to talk about the issues that we're facing, the investors are facing um, in the marketplace, in the in the economy, personally, et cetera, and, and how we should be thinking about it from an investment standpoint. So welcome. It's great to talk to you again. Chas, it's, it's so great talking to you. Uh, we saw each other not too long ago, and uh, I'm glad that that we can do this uh, podcast together. Yeah, thank you. It's, um, it's a real privilege having had the opportunity to do this with you um, after having the opportunity to talk to you around the country at different venues over the years. Um, it's great to connect this way. So thank you very much. I know your time is under sort of high demand at this point and uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So let's start out by by talking about the general environment. You know, we're, we're in unprecedented times. Clearly, investors are feeling stressed for two reasons. Um, obviously, the financial part that, that we're going to spend time on today, but we have to acknowledge the other stress, which is worries about their health, the health of their family, their loved ones or colleagues, et cetera. And as a result, it's, it's created a higher level of anxiety than certainly I've seen over my 40-year career in financial, in financial markets and dealing with, dealing with investors. And, and I know that, that the cause this time is different than the bear markets that we've seen before. We've never seen a bear market caused by a pandemic, at least in my experience. But I, I wondered if, in your view, the, the fact that the cause is different this time should mean that we should be responding any differently from a, from a financial economic perspective. I think, Chaz, you put it really well. There, there are certain distinguishing factors about this crisis that we have never experienced. I, I have never been home with the kids for two weeks and the cat and the dog and, and no school. All the restaurants closed, uh, beaches closed, everything is shut down. It's never happened in my lifetime or my, my parents' lifetime. So there are certain elements that, as you put it, are creating more anxiety. Um, and on top of that, really the, the, the folks uh, who are dealing with this on a health situation, um, it, it's, it's devastating to so many people and so many families. You have businesses uh, who are shut down and, and employees who are not uh, getting paid. And it, it is all around devastating and it is unprecedented. I mean, I don't think we need to sugarcoat it. We have never seen anything like this. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it's absolutely important to acknowledge this. And what we're trying to see uh, is whether or not, even though this is unprecedented, uh, perhaps there are lessons that we can draw uh, from the past uh, because ultimately the response to this crisis uh, as an investor would have to be similar uh, to what we've done in the past. It is a matter of 
controlling the cost of investing, maintaining discipline, which is probably the most important thing right now. Uh, looking at taxes, all these things that, that have mattered in the past, do they still matter today? Absolutely. Uh, even as we have a different type of a crisis. And, and I think maybe, uh, Chaz, if you don't mind, this is, might be a good idea to spend maybe uh, a little bit of time on what is different about this crisis and maybe what is the same? What are some of the patterns that we've seen across different crises? Because as you said, this is not the first crisis we've had, and this is different. So should we start with the differences or the similarities? <laughs> Why don't we start with the similarities and go to the differences? All right. So what what I find is uh, is interesting is that uh, this particular crisis is caused by uh, caused by the coronavirus, and and if you think about it, this coronavirus is unique. We have never seen a, a strain like this. We have never seen this exact type of a coronavirus, and we're looking at this is dangerous. This is really not unprecedented, uh, and at the same time. Can we look back at other coronaviruses that we might have seen in the past uh, to draw some lessons and and figure out um, maybe how to deal with this one? And it's the same here with the markets. We've never seen this crisis. uh, And perhaps it is useful to look back and see what is it that is similar from other crises and what is it that is different. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, I, I don't want to draw cheap comparisons here with, oh, we've seen this before. We've never seen this before. Uh, and uh, uh, what I'm looking more is are, are times, situations where the headlines were similar. The world is different. We have never seen anything like this. Uh, it, it's going to be really hard to see how we rebound from this. And, and there have been times when we have seen this headlines, these headlines. This is not the first time that we see these exact headlines, which is a different context. Obviously, 0809 was one of those when you had, uh, you know, uh, headlines such as the, the financial system is about to collapse and we cannot have an economy with a finan- without a financial system. Uh, there are people being thrown out of their homes. Uh, economic activity was really down. Unemployment was high. There were so many things about 0809 that felt desperate at the time as we were in the middle of the crisis. Uh, and, and that's one of them. And it's still fresh on people's memories. What I want to talk about is, is, is actually two others that have been really top of mind for me because what I've tried to do for myself, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not young, but I'm, I'm not to the point where I remember uh, things from the 70s, but I did want to bring up a, almost like a time machine. <laughs> and if I can put myself in the time machine and send me back to those uh, uh, periods and see how would I have felt as an investor? Uh, I, I thought that the, the periods that I would want to go to, uh, the first one would be 1973. Because in 1973, uh, a few things happened that, that were remarkable. The first one uh, was that, that up until that point, uh, the world operated on a gold standard. We believed in dollars because dollars were backed up by gold. And the government pledged that if you wanted to turn in your dollars, we will give you gold. And we have enough gold to cover all the dollar bills. Well, in 1973, President Nixon uh, uh, basically said that the government no longer pledges uh, to give you gold for your dollars. And it it was no longer gold standard, uh, but it was something called fiat money, that the money is is good and exists because people believe it's good. Uh, And there was a huge change. There was, think of that mindset change, because up until that point, I knew that the dollar bills are not just a piece of paper. They're really backed up by precious metals. And now that's no longer the case. Uh, so inflation was was high. You had uh, wage controls and price controls that the, that the president uh, put in place. 
But the one that I really want to go to is um, in the fall. There was a, a, a crisis in the Middle East. And to show their displeasure with the U.S. policy, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, decided to put a, an oil embargo against the U.S. So we did not receive oil. And promptly enough, what you saw were huge lines going for miles sometimes uh, at gas stations. Uh, no more gas. People were standing in these lines, uh, and, and the economic uh, impact was devastating. And again, in this time machine, put yourself in a car waiting for hours to gas up, and you're reading headlines, you know, how can we possibly have an economy because it's relying on oil and we don't have oil. It's coming from countries that are not always friendly to us. Uh, so we're doomed. You know, this is, we can't see a way out of this. And, uh, um, and uh, it's, it's a very dire situation. And it is unprecedented. We've never had to deal with a situation where fuel uh, has been a problem. And, and if, you if you think about it, that must have been really uh, terrifying, S you know, being in that car for hours, waiting to gas up, just to gas up, gas up and then uh, go back home. And you, if you fast forward 40 years, that did change the country. It did change us because we became the largest oil producer in the world. And we went from the gas guzzles of the 70s to much more fuel efficient cars. So in that respect, you know, perhaps there's a crisis where we've seen these headlines and there was a sense of desperation and panic caused by a different trigger. Uh, but nevertheless, it was something that, that uh, uh, people felt it was unprecedented at the time. The second uh, time machine that I'd like to build uh, is to go back to uh, 1936. And in 1936, you had the Olympics in Berlin and uh, Hitler presented over them. And uh, it, it just became apparent the direction in which the world is about to go. And in 1937, the U.S. stock market dropped by 35%, almost as much as it did in the great financial crisis. So terrifying year. You lost a third of your money in the market. 38 was a quick rebound, but 1939, the war begins and the market's down again. 1940, it becomes clear that this is going to be a global war. Europe is invaded. Once again, the market's down. 41, it's a negative year, and at the end, um, the U.S. market, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, gets drawn into the war. So if you're an investor and you, this time machine takes you into a living room with an old radio just sitting there on a couch and you think, well, last four out of the five years, I have lost my shirt in the market. Uh, four out of the five years, uh, I, I, they were negative in the market. Uh, there can't be anything good because we have uh, uh, cities being destroyed. We have millions of people dying. Uh, this is this is terrifying. We've never seen anything of this scale. Um, and as an investor, you go and say, "This got to be scary. This is this is the last place I want to put my money is in the stock market." Uh, look at what's done recently, and uh, um, and, uh, uh, and and it certainly doesn't look any better for the future. And what's fascinating is that, that even though historically the market has returned on average about 9-10% per year, uh, during the, the war years, the full war years, 1942 to 1945, the U.S. stock market did not return on average 9-10%. to What it did, it returned an average of over 20% per year during the darkest days of our parents' generation. And if you think about it, this is 
mind-boggling after uh, you know after four of the five years uh, as the world was beginning the uh, the market goes down and yet during those those really terrifying years the market somehow jumps up to the point where a dollar invested at the beginning of the war you know might as well have been have been doubled <laughs> by right, the end of the war right. um, and and, it, and, and it, what it, what it kind of got me thinking that in both of these instances it's not that that war is good for business I think there's a much more fundamental premise that has not changed and he asked me what has not changed in all these crises and in my opinion what has not changed is the fact that that we live in a society that that is uh, capitalist in nature and in this way of of, of uh, this economic uh, uh, system free markets are absolutely crucial and it is the free markets that 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 have helped us prevail because you know in world war ii if these companies could not sell cars they probably made tanks. If they couldn't sell toys, they might have made bullets for the war effort. Uh, in other words, these companies seek opportunity and they will find a way to make money in whatever state of the world we're in. Right. And I think that's the fundamental premise that has not changed. And it's the same that, that, that it was in the 1970s and it's exactly the same we see today. You have distilleries no longer making spirits, but they're producing hand sanitizer because that's what sells. That's what the demand is. That's what people want. You have car companies repurposing assembly lines uh, to make ventilators and uh, and whatever is is needed in the economy. And I think it is that uh, that fundamental premise that in free markets, um, uh, these the markets are resilient because uh, companies are resilient. And companies are resilient because I think all of us, mankind in general, is resilient. Uh, and that has not changed. And as long as that fundamental premise exists, there's certainly a reason to be, uh, to be optimistic. Yeah, I think that, that that's all true. I think the, um, all of the economic parts of the, of the discussion are you know, 100% correct. The, the hard part is anytime you go through one of these crises, um, and you know, I was a kid during the 73, uh, 74, you know, oil crisis, but anytime you, I've gone through them as a professional in my career, each one is, is really scary. Yeah. It, it would be, it would be hard to compare the levels of fear from one crisis to another because they all have different reasons. But I, I, I think it's fair to say that today's crisis has that additional element of personal safety um, and health that, um, that makes it particularly acute. But I think your point is clear that that doesn't change the underlying economic principles. The underlying economic principles are still there. And we have to, as, as investors, th do the best we can to reconcile the fear of the, of the pandemic with the anxiety that comes from volatile markets and try as best we can to separate those two things. And you, and you kind of hit it. I mean, that's exactly right. Um, you're absolutely right. There's uh, not only the, the rational analytical part to investing, but there's the behavioral side to investing. And there's a behavioral side to all of us. Uh, you mentioned fear. These are absolutely normal human emotions, and whatever crisis we're in, there's a sense of fear. And 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 you you put it really well that the sense of fear today is, is exacerbated by the fact that that we have to deal with our own personal safety, and uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I I do believe that that as investors, one of the big things that we all have to do is acknowledge the fear 
and, and recognize that it's normal as human beings to feel the way we do. There's nothing wrong with feeling anxiety, concern, fear, whatever the word you want to use, or excitement or greed, whatever, whatever the emotion you might be going through. There's no doubt in my mind that, that this is absolutely normal feeling. You know, and Chaz, well, I think what you're pointing out is that that in investing uh, in the market, uh, really successful investors are able to disentangle emotions from investment decisions. In other words, pay attention to the emotions. Don't don't ignore them because they're real to you. On the other hand, uh, don't make investment decisions that are clouded with emotion, whether it is fear or sometimes uh, um, excitement or, or greed. Yeah, I think I think that that's that's the most difficult ingredient to a successful long term investment experience, right? That's the hardest. You know, we can all we can all look at the numbers and we can all do the calculations and, and we can all understand. But when the rubber meets the road and you have to separate your emotional uh, feelings from from the analytical part, it's hard to do. And I think we need to acknowledge that that's the case. It's also acknowledging the role of the advisor because financial advisors are absolutely crucial in this process. And, and, and it's really, this is the time for, for you. And, and I've, I've known it for a long time. And I, and I remember talking to you after 809 and, and all the clients that you've helped at the time uh, manage this, uh, these emotions and the stress of investing. But it is crucial for individuals to work with an advisor because when times are good, it feels like, hey, anybody can do this. But it really, you're almost like, <laughs> I can say that you're like, like a, you're like a firefighter. Uh, you're, you're, you're a fireman for somebody's wealth because it is it in time of crisis that, that you really get to see how much a good advice shines and, uh, and helps people through these difficult times. And I think without it, it is really hard as much as people say, oh, I can deal with this, I can manage, it is so hard because, um, it, you know, it, uh, quite often people underestimate their ability to control emotions. Yeah, it's, and that's just, that's part of the human condition. And I would say the same thing if I have a medical issue, it's hard for me to dis disentangle that from, you know, the emotional part from the medical science part of the equation. Um, so, you know, I can understand how it would be difficult um, for someone looking at their finances to be able to dis disentangle those, those two things. I wondered if the market fluctuations as you, you know, we've all experienced particularly sharp fluctuations in the last 30 days or so, if those fluctuations, the declines should cause us to believe in any way that the markets are not functioning properly. Or is there is there an issue in the functioning of the markets that's causing this, or is this more just a a resetting of risk uh, tolerances, et cetera? Um, yeah, and that's uh, that is actually a very good question because you see there are other businesses not working. How about markets? Are they working? Are they doing what they're supposed to do? And I would say that 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 the markets are um, actually functioning well. Uh, and I'll give you the two main reasons that that I think uh, markets right now are are really well functioning and uh, and they're doing exactly what I would expect it to do. Uh, the market, and I know this is a big term that people use it all the time. Market is <laughs> taking a breather as if it went for a run, and it's a living organism. Well, market <laughs> is, is is basically a uh, you're looking at about 3,000 companies in the U.S. Uh, which have grown large enough to open up ownership to anybody in society. Uh, and, and these companies is, have a certain value. And their value is derived by the profits that they are expected to make. 
Because if you buy shares into a company, if you buy stock, you own a piece of that company. And as a, as a part owner, you are entitled to part of the profits. So the value of a company is really derived from the profits they're expected to make for you know, years and years and years on the road. Uh, and what what happens is that when you combine all these companies uh, and don't look at one of them in, by itself, but you look at them as a group to get a sense of the whole market, um, then you get a certain idea of the value of the whole. And obviously, some companies might go up in value, some go down, but the market as a whole is kind of looking across all of them. And when you see that that the market goes up. All it's basically saying is that the value of these these of these companies is growing, and that is because uh, these these market participants expect that the profits would be higher uh, than we thought before the news arrived. Now, at the beginning of the year, there was a certain expectation about these profits and the range of the profits that these companies would make. As information came out and as, as this coronavirus unfolded, it became very apparent to everybody that the companies won't make as much money that the profits will be lower. And of course, if you see that the profits will be lower and he won't make as much money, the value is lower. I'm not gonna pay as much to own a piece of it because I won't make as much money in profits. So when when, when, he, when he saw that the market dropped, so the market drop is, is nothing to be surprised. It's exactly what I would have expected, drop because these companies won't make as much money and uh, therefore they're not worth as much. I would have been shocked, by the way, <laughs> if it hadn't dropped. I would have been shocked if it stayed the same or went up, knowing that the profits would be lower. So in that respect, the market did exactly what I thought it would do. Now, the fluctuations that we've seen lately are also greater. And you know, I don't know that, that anybody in the world would, would be able to give you a play-by-play um, -play explanation why is it that you have big fluctuations, but intuitively, just intuitively, if you think of what I just, just mentioned right now, with this, uh, with the fact that this is the first time that we had to deal with a pandemic, there's no reference point uh, from the past. It's harder for market participants right now to gauge, you know, what type of scenario would this be? Would this be a dark scenario where you might have a longer lasting, maybe more severe crisis? Or is this something that, that soon enough uh, uh, will go back to where we were before? And because the range of these outcomes has uh, you know has widened, and you now can either have a you know much darker scenario than in the past, or a much rosier scenario than in the past. Um, that is that is you know certainly intuitively a reason why you might see these uh, these big uh, uh, fluctuations. That's the first reason that I think that the markets will, um, you know uh, are working uh, and functioning properly. The second reason is that today, as always in the past, the markets are uh, basically a, a way of looking at all the, the, the deals that are being made between buyers and sellers. Because for every buyer in the market, there has to be a seller. For every optimist, there has to be a pessimist. And at, at, at the market's trying to reflect the information and the opinions and the expectations of all of these folks. And nobody has a crystal ball to know exactly how this will play out, but everybody has opinions and expectations. And what the market is doing is allowing these buyers and sellers with different opinions to put all that information to work into this processing machine that ultimately comes up with a price. So when that deal happens, when the buyer buys and the seller sells, the expectation probably for the seller is that the market will continue to drop and that's why they're selling. And the buyers believing that the market will go up because otherwise if they all thought they would go down, why would anybody buy this price? So there's almost like perfect disagreement today in the market between buyers and sellers. 
half the market participants believe that the market will go up, and those are the folks buying supposedly, and then uh, half the market believes it's going down. Those are the uh, the sellers. Uh, so the, to me, that has not changed. It's the same. You do have free markets where these folks are competing, and it is competitive. It is very, very competitive, um, and these are very sophisticated investors. So that hasn't changed either, and that allows us to get information um, into these prices and to adjust continuously and, and incredibly uh, fast to uh, any new information. Yeah. So there's no there's no reason, in your opinion, to think that the current price um, of the market, whatever it is today at this moment. Uh, and whatever market we are talking about, as long as investors are freely making transactions, there's no reason to believe that that those prices are wrong per se. It's more that they they reflect the current thinking of the collective group of investors, and that will change as more information becomes available. Exactly. Everybody has some information. Everybody has some ideas. Everybody has some opinions. And I think what's beautiful about the market price is that puts all of these into a hopper and, and together it, it kind of blends them uh, into, um, I wouldn't say a consensus, but it looks at, at, at when you look at the combined wisdom of all these market participants, not any one opinion. Uh, that's, what, that's what you get with the market. Now, just to be sure, these market prices will move without a doubt. Uh, the reason they move is not because of something we know right now. The reason they move is because a minute from now, there will be some information, there will be some expectation um, about the future that we did not know a minute ago and or a second ago. And, and, and then uh, that's when the prices would reflect that. If it's good news, if we find out there's a new testing mechanism that takes 10 minutes and it, it's, it can be widely deployed, my guess is that the market would react positively to that because, uh, again, at that point, we might be able to solve the crisis um, in, a, in a more uh, efficient way. Uh, whatever. I mean, what, I'm just, this is just an example. Yes, understood. So, so is, it, is, it, is it rational to think that the heightened anxiety level that we've talked about already is accentuating some of the volatility? Because as information is processed, there's less, there's less certainty, there's less confidence that the information is correct or that it's being interpreted correctly. And uh, yeah, the correctness of the information, I think it's, um, it's one issue. I think that what, what, what you're seeing is that there, there's less clarity, less visibility. Mm -hmm. There is certainly more uncertainty on the on the outcomes. So the, uh, because this, this, this can go in so many different directions from here, the range of outcomes of what can possibly happen um, uh, because of this is broader. Exactly yeah. right. And that causes people to have valuations that are, uh, you know, uh, uh, greater in nature. There are a wider range of valuations that, that maybe uh, at the beginning of the year, there wasn't the case because even though there was this agreement, the range of these fluctuations of these valuations, perhaps it wasn't as great a, a, as it is today. Do you think in addition, it's fair to say in general, because of the factors that you just mentioned, people's risk tolerances have declined. Um, in other words, they're less risk tolerant. And as a result, the returns that they're requiring from the same investments that they, they were making you know, 60 days ago are now higher because their risk tolerance is lower. And that's driven the, the prices of those investments down because expected returns in the future and price are inversely related, right? So um, is it fair to say that 
looking forward, it's reasonable to expect higher returns than average coming out of a crisis like this, much like we may have seen in the past. Is that still valid? Yeah, I mean, the the academic theory is is, is certainly uh, exactly in line with what he just mentioned, that uh, the value of any company, uh, the value of any financial asset for that matter, is derived for the future cash flow, this future money that you're expecting to receive as an investor. Uh, so if I expect to get, let's say, a dollar for, you know, for the rest of my life, um, and there's not that much uncertainty around it, uh, you discount the future dollars and, you know, obviously a dollar from five years from now, not exactly the same as a dollar from, from today. Uh, so there's a certain discount rate, uh, which is what is the investors expect to return? Uh, it's a flip side of the same coin. And what you see is that that right now, even for the same expected returns, because of the uh, uncertainty, because perhaps of the uh, the, the risk uh, uh, tolerance that that, that uh, might be uh, different, uh, right now, this even though you, I might expect the same profit, uh, the rate at which I discount it is greater, so the price today is lower. So that the dollar from the future is not worth as much to me today because there's more uncertainty. And that means that exactly right what you said, that, the, that therefore the expected return has to be greater. Um, uh, so that's, um, that's absolutely in line with the academic thinking and what we've seen in the past. It's, it's exactly what we've seen in the past. When, when things become uh, less certain, uh, that's when you see the price drop because there is a higher uh, discount rate, which is in effect the investors expect return. Yeah, that's, and I think that's an important concept because um, those, those investors that can do the basic blocking and tackling that I think we would agree needs to be done now, which is to stay disciplined, to rebalance when it's appropriate, to manage the taxes where you can, to keep your costs as low as possible. Those investors that can do that are going to be in really good position to benefit from the improvement in markets when it happens. We don't know when it's going to happen, though. It, but when it happens, you need to be there. Because if you're not there, you're going to miss the opportunity. That opportunity is what separates successful investors over the long term from unsuccessful investors. It's being there and, and being ready when the opportunity presents itself. You're absolutely right. It is absolutely the staple of successful investors to look at periods like this as an opportunity rather than in panic. I mean, think of Warren Buffett. He keeps talking about, you know, investors should be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And this is exactly reflecting on the two things that, that you mentioned that I, I actually uh, think that, that even though they're intuitive, they're so hard to uh, implement without an advisor. Uh, advisor, absolutely crucial uh, at this point for two, uh, uh, two uh, activities that if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of touch on them because I sure. think they're so important. Uh, the first one is, is you mentioned this idea of rebalancing. Uh, rebalancing uh, fundamentally is so counterintuitive to many people right now because what rebalance is saying, okay, your stocks have dropped, but your bonds maybe they have gone up a little bit. And let's say we're just going to look at two different asset classes in a, in a portfolio, stocks and bonds. And if the bonds are going up, which typically tends to be the case, not all of them, but typically tends to be the case, uh, and the stocks have, have, have dropped significantly, then what rebalancing is saying is, is, is that go ahead and trim some of what went up and then go buy the falling stocks. 
And too many people are like, what? The stock market has dropped and you want me to buy more of it? Um, well, that's exactly what rebalancing calls for, is, is, is this idea that you want to sell high <laughs> and buy low, which is a primary uh, rule in investing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but the way you do it is not by deciding in the moment, let me do this. There has to be a predetermined program, a strategy that was decided on in advance so you can get the emotions out of the way. And at a time like this, you just simply implement a system that was preset in advance. And that's hugely important, not to make these decisions on the fly, but have a process in place uh, to begin with. And then very carefully for each individual, decide what is the right time to rebalance. And I know, Chaz, that that's something that, 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 that you mentioned, and I know it's a huge value proposition for advisors, because to your point, when the markets rebound, if you have not done this, you are light on stocks. You're underweight on stocks. And what it means is that, that, they, uh, that you won't be able to recover as fast. And it's also true on the other side. If you have too much in stocks, then maybe the portfolio is too risky. So that's the first thing. The second thing that he mentioned that, that really resonated with me was this idea of, of paying attention to taxes. But in times like this, what, what I know that you guys, and you should probably talk about more than I do, is this idea that, that if something has dropped in value, and you have to pay attention, you got to be very careful about this, uh, there might be a way that if you sell at a loss and, and you find something that might be somehow similar to invest in, when you did that, you, uh, you, you, you realized a capital loss. And what it means is that, that uh, on paper, uh, for tax purposes, you have a loss. And the beauty of that is that when you do have gains to realize later, you can offset those gains with these losses so the taxes of the future uh, would be uh, would be mitigated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the business as usual for us. Um, um, and it's I think it is important. And, and I think it's worth saying that, you know, every every situation is different. Um, that's why we have individualized approach to the advice that we give. But the, the job as I see it, is for us to understand each individual's situation and apply the principles in the way that makes the most sense for that individual. Mm-hmm. And and not all investors are created equal in terms of their circumstances. So each situation needs to be customized to some degree, but the basic principles apply. Absolutely. And what really is upsetting to me as a professional and having done this for as long as I have is to listen to news broadcasts and wherever it might be, where you have someone from an investment firm making recommendations about buying and selling different securities and, and knowing that they have no idea of the, whether it makes sense for the individual listener. So I don't want to make that, that same mistake here and just want to emphasize that these things have to be customized, but I think it's it's really important to make sure that you understand what the basic blocking and tackling strategies are in this environment and be sure that they're being applied as appropriate to your situation. You know, it, it's it's really hard from, from our perspective as advisors. Um, you know, we care about the people that we work with and the clients that we work for. So we have the financial part to deal with, which is more cut and dry than the health issues that we're helping clients talk through and deal with and the sort of the counseling that goes on on both sides of that equation. This is a really important time to have a conversation or at least understand clearly what it is that your options are, your choices are as an investor at this point. 
And, and I think as I look forward, I, I don't think it's a question of whether these things will recover. What I worry about more is are investors going to be positioned well enough so that when things do recover, they can take advantage of that. They'll, they'll be able to harvest the returns that are now made available, the positive returns. When those occur, you and I, I think, would agree, I don't know when that's going to happen. It could, be, it could start in May. It could start in September. It could be later. could be earlier. But because we don't know that, it's important to maintain portfolio discipline at all times. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree. You really have to start with a plan, understanding why exactly are you investing? What is the right balance in, in your in your assets between, you know, stocks and bonds? And, and, and you know, listening to those blanket recommendations, this is, a you know, go ahead and invest or don't invest. How can you possibly make this suggestion if you don't know who that person is? If you have a retiree who basically depends on on a, on a fixed income uh, and they have no pension, you know that's a very different scenario that, than than a thirty year old who's you know employed and, and making uh, a decent wage. So you can't have this one size fits all. Everybody's different. Everybody has different circumstances, risk preferences, and I think you're absolutely right. It, it does need to start with a plan and talking to an advisor. Yeah. You know, from that perspective, uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation and, and uh, you've indulged me with a lot of your time, which I really appreciate. Is there, is there anything else that you think we, we've missed in this conversation that you would want to emphasize before we sign off? You know, I, I think it was it was great, you know, fun talking to you. Uh, I, I would say that uh, right now it's uh, so much about putting things in perspective and uh, acknowledging the emotional side uh, and having somebody trustworthy to be able to uh, talk to. Uh, and anytime I, I think that that somebody feels a little anxious, feels a little concerned about what's going on in the market, what's going on with their own portfolio, uh, my, my suggestion is, is to go talk to an advisor because an advisor is a coach. Uh, and everybody, I mean, you think of CEOs and, 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 and big time athletes, they have a coach. And, and, and this is uh, one of the role of the advisors is to be a coach through times like this. And uh, I, have, I have no doubt, and, and this is becoming a cliche, we will prevail, we'll get through this. Uh, you know, we will, because as a society, I can't imagine that, that, you know, everything will fundamentally change. This is a really tough time. There's no doubt about it. And there will be uncertainty, hardship, uh, and we'll come out at the other end stronger than, than we were. Yeah, that's my belief as well. And, and uh, in closing, I wish you the best and good health and um, to your family as well. I'm sure we'll be talking again, Apollo. I thank you so much for, for taking some time with us today. And We'll look forward to uh, connecting with you the next time. As you, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining Apollo and me as we discussed the financial implications of the COVID-19 crisis and provided some perspective based on past crises. We look forward to bringing you more helpful perspectives and information on a variety of topics on future podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to The Wealthcast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode.
We'll see you next time on The Wealthcast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.